Hello and welcome to the Oxygen Addict podcast. We're brought to you every week by our sponsors, PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. You can personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so you perform at your best with 15% off your first order of electrolytes and carbohydrate fuel with the code OA23 at PrecisionFuelAndHydration.com. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Coach Rob Wilby, and every week we bring you an episode of this podcast to help motivate and inspire you. This week, myself and Coach Chris Palferman are going to do a special Coach's Couch edition on run training for your Ironman. So we've been having a load of questions come through to us via the Ironman Europe Instagram channel. We've been working in collaboration with them to try and help athletes enter into any Ironman Europe event this year, really get the best out of their training, whether they're coach or not coached by really giving you some solid advice. So for athletes who are uncoached, it's going to give you a really good basis of understanding of physiology and run background so you know how to structure your own training and can avoid making the big mistakes that self-coached athletes often do. For those of us who are coached athletes on Team Oxygen Addict, it's going to form a greater underpinning of your knowledge and understanding of the run training philosophy that goes into the training we put together for you and helps ensure that you get to race day in really good shape, not completely broken, with no injuries or minimizing the risk of injuries and niggles as much as we can along the way, certainly from the point of view of controlling the things that we can actually control which is awesome. Little shout out here. We're also over on YouTube as well as on podcasts. So if you're listening to this on a podcast subscription service at the moment, you can go over onto our YouTube channel. You can search for Team Oxygen Addict there. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Our views are really significantly growing over the last few weeks there, which is awesome. So we're managing to reach much more people. So if you're someone who would like to watch this instead of listen to it, YouTube is the place to go. Remember to like and subscribe. And before we go into this episode, I want to give a massive shout out to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. You can use their free fueling and hydration planning tool to receive a personalized strategy for your next race. I love this company. They provide both electrolyte sachets and carbohydrate fuel so you can stay hydrated. There's much more to it than just drinking water. And in fact, if you just drink water, it's not going to do as good a job of staying hydrated as if you get your electrolytes electrolytes correct as well. So for long-term, long-course triathlon use, absolutely essential that you get both your electrolyte concentration and your carbohydrate intake correct. We'll talk a lot more about this later on in the actual episode when we're discussing fueling for your training. So get over there. It'll help you understand your own needs for carbohydrates, electrolytes, and fluid so you can refine your own strategy and training, and then you can deliver it on race day. You can also book a free one-to-one video consultation with PFNH's athlete support team. That's how awesome they are. No obligation. They'll talk you through what you need for your body type, how you sweat, the events that you're doing, and they'll be happy to help you nail your race nutrition plan. I love the company. They've worked with us from the very early days of the podcast, and I think they've got the best products out there. So I don't think you can be afford. I don't think you can afford to be without the support of really targeted electrolytes in order to get your hydration absolutely spot on, because it will literally pull the rug out from underneath your race. So. Without any further ado, let's go over to this week's episode. It's a good one. It's a long one. We've got over an hour's worth of chat between Coach Chris and I, and I'm really loving working with Coach Chris Palferman. We bring out the best in each other in these chats that we're having here in in different points of view and complementary points of view and different advice we can offer athletes and same advice we can offer to athletes who are just from a different perspective and a different coaching point of view. 
So I really hope you enjoy this chat, which is aimed at improving your Ironman run. Okay, Coach Chris, welcome, uh, welcome aboard. Welcome back on. How are you doing today, my friend? Thank you. I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, it's a um, today's a slightly easier day for me, and I think a lot of the athletes that are listening to, this, especially within TOA, um, kind of share this feeling that on a Monday things things feel a little bit easier in terms of physically. It's our recovery day, and I'm still recovery day. Yeah, still active like many of our athletes are, but it is nice to have that little off switch on a Monday, knowing that you can prioritize other elements. And then, uh, yeah, back into it. So big weekend at the weekend. You managed to get some riding done? Yeah, I had a little break in the weather, which I'm sure a lot of people in the UK oh, nice, are celebrating. It? it was really nice. So yeah, got out for the long ride and a long run. So yeah, I was delighted. Awesome stuff. Mm. All right, well, listen, we want the focus of today's episode to be, we've got um, a whole bunch of questions have been sent in to us by people who follow Ironman Europe on Instagram. So if, if listeners, if, you, if you're not aware of this, we're doing some collaboration work with Ironman Europe and we're allowing any athletes who are doing any Ironman Europe event to ask coaching questions that they can then get answers to from, from the IMU coaches or from us as IMU coaches. And this month in Ironman Europe world is run focus month. So we had a whole load of questions sent in regarding different elements of run training in, in order to get yourself in shape for a, um, a marathon this coming summer in an Ironman event. So that's the context, really. So I think it's important to set it up this way for the listeners. A lot of the answers that we give will be specific to the idea that we're giving advice here to people who are going to be doing an Ironman coming up and who mostly are going to be doing an Ironman this coming summer. So as we're recording, we're in the region of six months away from that. So we're going to answer the questions through that lens so people get an idea of where we're coming from. It's really fun doing this stuff for Ironman Europe. I, I enjoy it, Chris, but also there's a weird kind of element of sitting in sitting in the studio with the camera on yourself, talking to yourself. And it's much more fun to try and do it with you and we can get some coaching back and forth. And there's also the element that on the Instagram just because the nature of Instagram stories, you've got to answer within 60 seconds or it cuts you off. And it's so hard mm -hmm. to answer a big topic question in 60 seconds. So it's great to be able to get the chance to do it long form as well. Yeah, it's great. And I think it's a genuine privilege to kind of be oh, in contact with all these athletes who are so obviously so. on, a, you know, they've got a big aim, a big challenge coming their way. And a lot of them, this will be their first Ironman. And I think we can all remember how that felt. It feels like a total new world and, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And some of the athletes listening to this may have heard this question or these questions a million times, but actually it's refreshing to explore those themes all over again. And, you know, not everyone knows everything. So let's start from yeah. that as being the starting point. I can still remember mate, when I did my, I did my first Ironman in 2003 and I'd gone to travel around Australia and there was a little triathlon club in the town I was living in. Nobody at the club had done an Ironman. There was one guy in the local bike shop who knew somebody who'd done an Ironman. And when I asked him for any advice, his advice was basically, listen, son, you're going to get killed out there. Don't even bother. <laughs> and like, he was right. I was like, yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Well, that doesn't seem like the kind of advice I would hope for. And I got really lucky with a really friendly guy from an internet forum who I was on one of those Australian pre-slow twitch type forums. And he just said to me, hey, kid, look, it sounds like you got loads of questions. Give me a ring. 
And he'd done five or six Ironman Australia's at the time and answered all these questions for me. And I thought it's so useful to be able to talk to somebody mm. who's done it before. And I was super lucky that he was such a good person to talk to, it turns out, because he was all about, look, you ain't going to win this thing. Let's get you through this and get you as fit as you've ever been in your life and get you out there and have a good time on race day and enjoy it. And God willing, you'll get across the finish line. But it was never about heart rate, power, pace, all the complicated stuff that's there these days. The basic principle was let's just stop you from killing yourself. Let's stop you from injuring yourself and let's get you doing enough training that you're going to get fitter for it. So I think without realizing it, that's that's kind of underpinned the philosophy I've brought to coaching for the last 20 years. Yeah, totally. And hopefully, you know, little sessions like this and question and answers that we're getting might be that kind of wise solution to someone else who's approaching this. So yeah, I find it really exciting that we can connect with these people that we've never met, knowing that they're on an amazing path towards, you know, one of the most amazing events in the world. So yeah, yeah exciting stuff. Yeah. And it, and it genuinely is, like you said, mate, there is no question that you can think of that's stupid. I had three people email through this week or DM on Instagram and say, look, I'm glad such and such asked this question because I felt like it was going to be stupid and I'd get laughed at for answering, mm. uh, for asking it. But the question is, if you're at, if you're thinking the question, probably somebody else's as well. So ask away. Let's do what we can to help you out. Yeah, totally. Shall we so, kick it off then? We'll kick yeah. off with these questions that came in. So we've we've both managed to print versions of these out, haven't we, to, to get into as we go along. So if you kick it off for us and we'll uh, we'll see what we can do to help people out here. Sure. So the first question came in from Danny Mayer. And this is a really good question. And I think whatever stage within your triathlon you're at, this is a relevant one. Um, so what's the best balance within running? High volume versus high intensity so i yeah. think danny's looking for a bit of structure around his run volume and when to integrate any intensity if at all um, yeah over to you rob well i think it's an awesome question because again if we come back to basic principles someone who isn't coached is probably in a triathlon club or they may be going to a running club a cycling club a, a swimming club and getting conflicting advice from people who are often well-meaning but that advice on running is going to come from a running coach, not necessarily someone who understands the demands of swimming and cycling are going to have any time as well. And almost always when people come to us, they're really surprised and they look at the plan and say, but I don't understand it. Where are the run intervals? Where's the speed work? I'm, I'm going to lose all my speed unless I do some hard running. And the answer to Danny's question is when we're preparing for an Ironman, we're going to have you do almost exclusively easy paced runs. And by that, we just mean zone two runs. We mean steady runs that you can have a conversation with somebody. The best case scenario for most age groupers, apart from the very, very front of the pack on race day, is going to be that you're going to be able to hold what Jack Daniels describes as e-pace. So if you don't know who Jack Daniels is, he's written a great book called um, Jack Daniels Running Formula. There's a link on oxygenatic.com forward slash V dot. And he breaks down really clearly four or five different pace zones for training and racing. He's a, an old school physiologist who's done tons of work in the lab and has broken it down into a really simple way that athletes can get the pace that they need to run at. So if you're just going out for your steady run at Jack Daniels E-Pace, if you can deliver that on race day, you're going to have one of the faster marathons of the day. So for a guy like me, I was a 
I was like three hour flat marathon runner in my best race shape. If I could deliver somewhere in the region of 325 on race day in a marathon in an Ironman, I'd have been absolutely over the world. Now that didn't sound fast. It's like eight minute miling, which for someone who can do a 16 minute something 5k, it's ridiculously not fast running, right? But that's not the point. It's not about how fast you are as a runner, as we know. It's about how well you can keep on running at any pace at the end of between, you know, nine, 10, up to 16 hours worth of exercise. So the answer to Danny's question is, let's take all the complicated stuff out of this. Let's take all the hard running out. Let's have you do all your runs easy, make them pleasant and enjoyable so that you can then concentrate your efforts to do the harder stuff where it's going to do you more benefit on the bike, which we'll, we'll get to later. I think that's bang on. And it's not an easy one for athletes to hear, I want you running slower. We really struggle with that. And so there is yeah. an element of we need to put our, I don't know whether it's ego, but we, we need to get rid of our perceptions of hmm. what we're actually going to be able to do on an Ironman marathon. And, I, you know, I found that hard in the past. I can run a quick, fresh marathon, but that doesn't translate into a strong, you know, marathon off the bike. So they are two different sports. And I think it's pretty dangerous thinking you know, and comparing your marathon time versus your triathlon run times. So they're, they're different sports. Yeah, yeah re really good question. And I couldn't agree more with your answer there. I think most people, if you can just keep moving forwards, if you can just keep running, and, and we'll come to talk about the 9-1 run-walk method later on, if you can keep repeating nine minutes e-pace with a minute's walk, you are going to feel like you are the fastest runner in the sport over the last 10 miles because most people, anyone will know this if they've been to watch an Ironman, most people are walking in the second half of the marathon. And if you're listening to this and you've never done an Ironman and you think that won't happen to you, well, the answer is going to be, unless you do something differently to the majority of people training, it probably will happen to you as well. And the other challenging thing, Chris, I think is in this age of social media access to top pro triathletes, we get to see the sessions that Gustav and Christian and Joe Skipper are doing, and they are doing a lot of, you know, hard tempo runs and interval runs in the training. And the mistake tends to be, well, I will... I will cherry pick the sessions that they're doing from their training. I don't have as much time, so I should just do the hard stuff that they're doing. It isn't relevant. Or it is not as specific for an age grouper to be doing a tempo run at threshold as it is for them to be practicing their most likely run pace. And these guys day. have girls and, you know, they've been in the sport since the age of whatever, the majority of them. They've got a very different foundation within the sport than you know, someone coming to their first mm. Ironman within in six months. Very, very different. So you do have to be careful, especially with running. We all know that the majority of injuries come from running. Therefore, the fastest athlete is going to be the one that's able to pace it correctly, but also the one that's injury-free on the start line. And so half the challenge is getting to that start line injury-free. How do you do that? You protect your running by making sure that you're doing low impact, low force on your joints during the six-month buildup. So yeah, it's a it's a real game of patience that one. Yeah, totally. And we could use um if if we look back at our mate Tom from Ironman UK 
couple of years back, he won his age group in the male, it's either male 40 or male 45, won the age group overall with the 321 marathon. And it was a totally scorching marathon performance compared to everybody around him. On paper, 321 does not look fast for the fastest age group winner, but certainly on the Ironman UK course with the relentless there is no flat on the course kind of nature it's much more about the durability of the body come race day than it is about the the top end threshold speed and tom proved that he did all of his long runs as nine one runs and absolutely destroyed everybody in his age group come race day because he had the discipline to train the way he was going to race and i think that's a key thing for our listeners if you can rephrase we were saying before, it's really hard to not go hard when you're trying to be a disciplined athlete. It's about making that become discipline. I'm disciplined enough to do the training I need to do rather than the training that I want to do. I think that's the key for mm. a lot of people. Make but, it a hard thing. Jocko Willinick, you know, the Navy hmm. SEALs guys, he's going to be doing the training he needs to do not the training he wants to do. He's not hmm. just doing bicep curls in the gym, is he? <laughs> no. Uh, I think there's also a lot of us can be scared that we're losing a minute's worth of running every 10 minutes, but that's not comparable to the 10 miles of running that you're going to be losing in the last 10 miles if you're walking them. So just banking, you know, a minute every 10 minutes where you can make sure you're fueling, you're lowering the impact on your body, lowering your heart rate and basically protecting the last half the last quarter of your race that last 10 miles is going to be utter hell if you've mispaced it so you've got to make sure that your training is reflecting that so the more you practice that e-pace running that you talk about the more likely you're able to actually deliver that on race day there's no point being an amazing tempo runner for six months in the lead up to your race try tempo running you'll be able to do your first 10 miles and you'll look a million dollars, but that's pointless if you're walking 15 miles at the end. And, you know, we've, we've all seen how it unravels extremely quickly. I can put numbers on this. I did the maths ages ago, Chris, if you're an eight minute miler and you walk for a minute, every 10 minutes, you get to the 18 mile point and you've given away eight minutes against the you who ran the whole way, eight minute miles. But if from that point on, you've then got to walk the eight miles to the finish you're giving away seven or eight minutes per mile mm. to the person who is still running eight minute miles. So you're still going to catch that version of you. Even if that version of you only has to walk the last couple of miles of the marathon, you're still going to be faster overall. So it's all about reframing it as a, I'm not giving something away here. I'm essentially banking something to collect interest later on. Yeah, totally. I've got a little anecdote actually. Um, Go on. Yeah. Where I was the training partner to a professional triathlete at the time, Brad Williams, who um, who you know from PH Precision Hydration. And it blew my mind in my first few sessions that I did with him running because I was far outrunning him in terms of pace. And I couldn't believe it. I was all fired up to do this endurance run with him. And I was essentially dropping him and I couldn't work it out and I was saying you know you feeling all right today and he was like oh I'll never run as fast as you're running on this easy run and I was like but you're a professional athlete and that's the point where he was explaining to me that I'll be doing many more runs than you within a week within a month but all of them will be slower but come race day I'll be running in that last 10k 10 miles and the likelihood is me I'll be walking it and I could I could visibly see 
what was happening in in that training so yeah big shout out to brad for basically teaching me that lesson i did i did take it on board and ever since yeah. then i i always focused on the last 10k or 10 miles of my triathlon and that's i can look at that as a micro race within the race and if i'm running that bit i know that i've done well yeah that's awesome yeah really awesome okay next question so we're going to go to william babe so this yep. is uh, this kind of links to what we were just talking about, and he's asking for the best pace for a triathlon. So if we think about the run specifically, but of course we've got to factor in swim and bike, but specifically give some advice on how to pace your run for a triathlon. Yeah, so specifically for an Ironman, I've referenced this a little bit earlier on. If you go to oxygenatic.com forward slash dot, or you buy Jack Daniel's book, The Jack Daniel's Running Formula, there's a really on, online we've got an online calculator where you type in a recent race result from an open run and it will give you your e-pace your marathon pace your threshold pace and these have been sort of backwards engineered from having thousands of athletes do vo2 max tests in the lab so basically it saves our listeners from having to do a vo2 max test in a lab which is great more power to you if you want to go and do that but this is the easier way specifically for the Ironman marathon, Jack Daniels's e-pace is fantastic because A, it is a really good, steady pace you can chat to somebody at in training. It's not, it's not going to feel slow, but it is a specific pace where you will get a range of about 30 seconds a mile or 30 seconds a kilometer there or thereabouts to stay within. And on the days when you're feeling really good in training, hold yourself back to the fastest end of that range. And on the days when you're not feeling so good, and we all have them, as long as you're somewhere in that range, even at the slower end of it, you're still giving your body enough to get that aerobic, um, that aerobic development, the, the, the sort of the, the body's ability to develop still. That's still happening when you're going at the slower end of it. So it's more of a cap than a than a target, really. People look at it and go, right, I should be at the very fastest end. And you can be on your best days, but as long as you're somewhere in that range, that's great. And what that'll do, people, is it will give them a frame of reference for when they're running, because some of our listeners might never have gone out and thought about what kind of pace they're running at. They might not have any kind of idea what a reasonable marathon pace is for them, let alone a reasonable marathon pace on the day. And I think that's what leads people to come to us and say, you know, in a, in a first call with an athlete, my two goals are I'm going to run a four hour marathon in my Ironman and I'm not going to walk. It's like the, I'm just going to pick two things. I can, I can pick an a, a arbitrary time and I can pick a decision to not walk. And they're going to be my measurements of success. They're not linked to anything other than just having plucked a random round number out of the sky. So let all those ideas go. If that's you go to the science Work out what Jack Daniel's running formula will tell you is a reasonable effort for your e-pace. That'll mean your training is directly targeted at how hard or easy you need to go. And it will give you a reasonable idea for what your best case scenario will be come race day. And I did seven Ironmans in my career. Only one of them managed to hit a marathon at just close to e-pace in all of them. The rest of them where they're falling apart somewhere between mile, well, mile 13 and the finish. In one case, that was a horror show. I'm afraid it's not good. But if you can get close to that, that let me know. If you, Rob, if you can run 325, that is your 
that is your golden target for that. And it removes the element of, well, I should be running, you know, I'm a 258 marathon runner. I should be running 305. Well, guess what? No, you shouldn't be. That's your reasonable best case scenario for that. I think having that sliding scale, that kind of 30 seconds per mile, let's say, is really useful within training because, as you're saying, not all days are equal and Mm. the human body, you know, behaves and feels differently on different days. So you've got to remember that on a Monday versus a Friday, you might feel very different in terms of training fatigue, training load that you're going through. Did you have a key bike session on the Sunday? Therefore, your Monday might feel you know, slightly different to your Friday. So having that sliding scale means that you're not always pinpoint at that specific pace and you can adapt it on perceived effort, which I think is really important. And the mm. more runs that you can back up, the better. So, you know, being at the top end of your e-pace the whole time is not better than being in the middle or being lower. It's just you're trying to set up the next run or the next session. So sometimes you're going to have to back off and that's okay. Let go of the the faster pace or the top E pace that you might have in the back of your mind. That That's not relevant every single session. You've got to look after your body. Absolutely. Mm. Mate, I think that thing you've just said is so important to, to let something go today so you can back it up tomorrow and the day after. Ironman training is a six-month process. It's not a 60-minute now process. And lots of us live in our own heads right now like a dog does. You know, I'm happy or sad right now. You have to take that long-term view. This is an interesting one. I had um, a kind of conversation with one of my one-to-one athletes who is a very good athlete in their own right. But they I feel that they fall into the trap of looking at sessions isolated from either their week or their training block or their month and that's okay to a certain degree when you're trying to hit targets and you know different elements of a training plan but I also feel that in reality that's not how training works you you should never be really looking at one session in isolation even a week I feel is slightly misleading the human body doesn't work in seven day cycles from Monday to Sunday. That's just the way we like to categorize it because it actually works well with our routine. But looking at things more on a 10 day scale or two week or three week, or even as your training block, if it happens on a four week or three week cycle makes much more sense. So if you have to miss the odd session here to look after yourself, that's okay because in the grand scheme of things, you're still setting yourself up for a better next day tomorrow. So if you can let go of trying to hit every single session at the exact intensity, you might be setting yourself up for a better run in six months' time when you're actually off the bike at Ironman UK or wherever it may be. So I think, yeah, there's a letting go process in there and understanding that we tend to simplify things as humans and try and put everything in boxes. And the training benefits are far more fluid than you know binary yes or no that's better yeah totally agree um the next one i've got for you is from josh nuss um and this is one that you know we see quite often in the triathlon community which is a very simple three words this question runners knee fix question mark <laughs> yeah is there a is there an easy and quick fix for my runner's knee for my achilles tendonitis for my Dot, dot, dot. Well, Josh, yes, there is. And our advice is always going to be the same in this. It's going to be find a good sports physiotherapist, go and get treatment as soon as you can, 
take the advice on the rehab and the prehab from that sports physio, because that is the fastest route you're going to have back to training. Now, different physios over the years have, have given me different feedback on that specific issue. Some of them have said to me, you're okay to keep training through this. You have to manage the pain because I mean, runner's knee is really painful. It's one of those things where it's uh, it's painful to the point of debilitating, but it isn't actually a you know, the pain feels as though you're being stabbed in the side of your leg with a knife every time you bend your knee, but it isn't actually doing any serious long-term damage. Some physios have just said, look, you're best off resting it. So I would say find the physio that's going to treat you and you can build a healer's relationship with. So you can get that ability to say, right, I trust this person and whatever treatment they recommend, commit to it, follow it up, most importantly, follow up with the rehab exercises that you have to do afterwards, because it's usually not the one hour of treatment you have. It's the exercises they send you away from to do specific corrective exercises afterwards that are going to be the thing that help you in the long term. I think we can expand it away from just runner's knee to any kind of injury, can't we? Yeah, totally. And I think uh, an important element here is the the trust element and don't just look for a physio that's telling you what you want to hear you need to go to a physio that you fully believe in their training their philosophy their values and then once you believe in that you have to let go of what you you want to do or what you want to hear and if they're telling you it's six weeks of absolutely no running minimal cycling and lots of swimming then that's what you're gonna to have to do and that doesn't mean you shoehorn in some secret runs that means you have to actually fully sign up to to what they say because if you're going to half-hearted do some recovery some prehab rehab stuff from various different physios you're never going to get to your overall kind of full potential for health and full health mm. naturally is going to be the overall goal and the healthiest athletes are the quickest ones so you really have to prioritize that even if it means short-term pain within within your training schedule yeah i think so and it's such a good point chris that it's so it's so hard to let go of the idea of I have a, it's like I have a training schedule over here and the athlete could almost hear the sessions whooshing by that they haven't done each time. There goes another one. There goes another one. I think you've just got to let go of the idea of, right, that plan was in place. Just because we've had to change it doesn't make the new plan any less valid. It's because we're making a plan to get you from where you are right now. And if it involves having a week off, fine. We can change a plan to get you where you need to be. But the first part of that healing process, I think, is fully accepting where you are, taking the advice of a professional who knows that they can they can help you and treat it. And log log your rehab. Just because mm. it's not yeah. aerobic or anaerobic training doesn't mean you're not, you know, doing the steps to make yourself a better better athlete. So anything that's actually making you get to the next stepping stone of being a better athlete, you should log that in training peaks if it helps. So, you know, if you've got two 10 or 20 minute mobility sessions um rehab prehab put it in put it in training peaks it will help you visualize the process that you're going through and keep you accountable to the two or three sessions a day that the physio is advising you to do yeah i totally agree mate so next up we have a question from faris Katik. rob can you give an example of interval training for a full distance ironman yeah, I absolutely can, or we absolutely can, but it's not going to be what Ferris imagines it's going to be, is it? So again, if we go back to the idea of a runner at a running club doing an interval session for a marathon, it's going to involve 
some periods of running at pretty high intensity followed by some breaks. We're not going to involve any intensity like that in our Ironman marathon training plans, but we are still going to involve this idea of intervals because we'll give credit here. Jeff Galloway was a running coach originally came up with the run walk nine one method. I was given it by a coach years ago. And I remember thinking to myself, this coach has got me on the wrong training plan. He, he doesn't understand. I'm a real runner that has run, you know, 16 minutes for 5k or whatever. Being forced to walk for a minute every 10 minutes was so hard on my ego. I was worried at first, Chris, that people were going to see me, that I knew in the area and think there was something wrong with me as I as I walked along the road. Um, but that walk break every 10 minutes does something absolutely magic in the long distance run. And I think the first thing it does is it'll mean that come tomorrow, you won't be sore or you won't be sore compared to the you that ran the full distance today. And for Ironman training, that is the most important thing, being able to train again tomorrow. So we often hear of people who've ruined themselves with a really long, hard session. We're always going to advise people to stay well this side of that line of ruining yourself because you need to be able to train again tomorrow. So the intervals that we're going to do for our run training, Ferris, for the Ironman Marathon are going to be a one-minute walk every nine minutes of running on your long runs. And by long runs, I mean either A, whatever feels long for you right now, or B, if you're if you're in sort of decent regular training shape, anything over an hour. So I won't have our athletes run for more than 60 minutes continually at any point in the training plans, even if the training for a full flat out marathon, I'll still have them do that walk break all the way along the way. So it's it's not really the answer people are expecting, I think, when they come to us. It could be quite a liberating answer, though. You know, I'm putting my um, myself in Faris's shoes and maybe expecting you to say these, you know, threshold seven minutes or, you know, crazy hard runs. But actually, if you as an experienced coach are telling me it's OK to really easy run and include walking within that and that counts as an interval then you know that's going to get rid of a bit of uh, stress anxiety around the how the hell do I get ready for an Ironman so I actually think that's going to be really helpful Um, I want to add a sub question to Faris's Mm. question to you Rob which is um, whether you count a brick run as an interval and give Faris a bit of an idea of at what point and how often he or she could include a run off the bike in their training. Yeah. So for Ironman running, we tend to start the brick runs about eight weeks out before um, Ironman race day. And we'll start with them being really short. They start off at 10 minutes long and they actually never get longer than 45 minutes with most of them being in the 15 minute range a couple of 30s and maybe that one 45 minute run. The reason that we run off the bike in training is to remind our brain that although our legs feel horrible for the first few minutes, they will come back. They will start to feel normal again. And after those first few minutes of whether you want to call them jelly legs or bike legs or whatever, once they've passed, you go back to running, feeling normal again. And again, this actually goes back to the very first Iron Man guy from Australia who talked to me. I was convinced I'd need to do a two-hour run off the bike. And he said, Look, mate, as soon as you've taught your brain that you can run again after being on the bike, the brick runs job is done. 
And there's one very specific time that we don't treat it that way. But for all the rest of them, it's simply a case of setting off and being convinced that you're just in horrible shape and it's all going to fall apart. And then telling yourself again and again, my legs will come back. My legs will come back. Getting to the point you feel okay and you can stop the run there. That's really good. I think I've seen a lot of athletes um, go through that process, but start it far too early and start their brick runs, you know, January, February, even though they're doing their A race in July, August, even. And you've got to be careful. They, even though you might only be doing 20 minutes, half an hour of brick running, they do take a lot out of you. And the benefit of doing them early isn't really there. So save that up and focus on your bike as bike and run as e-pace running separately and you can bring them closer together as you Mm. get close to the event but you know i don't really want to be seeing athletes in their run shorts uh, sorry in their cycling shorts running down the street now in in the winter in the uk 100 you're not going to get that benefit so yeah yeah take your time And, and again it's just to reassure people if you can run in training and you're in run shape in training you can run off the bike on race day as long as we've done those little conditioning efforts along the way you just have to trust that you are in good enough shape to do that because it's not about learning to run with tired legs that will be built that fitness for running will be built separately this one leads into the next question nicely from uh live and do it my long run trainings for 70.3 and for ironman are very similar two to two hours 15 is that normal Normal. Normal is an interesting choice of word here, isn't it? Especially in the Ironman community. (laughs) I'll talk about what we do. So for our 70.3 athletes, their long runs will be two hours long. No longer than that, even if athletes are going to take longer than that on race day. And no shorter than that, even if the athletes are running a a 115-120 off the bike, we're going to get them in shape to run two hours in training. For for Ironman marathon distance running, we'll have the long run go to three hours in length. And again, even if an athlete's expected to take four and a half, five, six hours come race day, we're not going to have them run for more than three hours in training. And the reason for that is it's just what we talked about before. It's the ability to train again the next day. And somewhere around the two hours, 45 to three hour mark seems to be the tipping point beyond which... The negatives of being tired after doing it are outweighed by the positives of any kind of increasing, I've said that the wrong way around, haven't I? That the negatives outweigh the positives of doing it at that point. What I would say here is if an athlete is going to be out on race day for five hours, six hours, by its very nature, that's going to involve a lot of walking. So let's incorporate that into your training. So instead of focusing on, well, you know, I might do a three hour run in training and, and cover 21 kilometers. A really good way for those athletes to get ready for their Ironman marathon is to go out and go for a hike. It'll get the family, get the backpack, be out on your feet for five or six hours. There's just as much value in doing that as there is. In fact, more so, I think, than trying to do an increasingly long, long run. Here's a lived anecdote for you. Um, in my, I'm trying to remember how many full Ironmans I did top of my head seven let's say um the longest training run i ever did was two hours 15 and at times i i just used to freak myself out thinking how how is my longest run ever 
two hours 15. I should be doing two hours 30 is surely better than two hours 15. If I'm doing two hours 30, maybe I should be getting to two hours 45, then three hours. Three hours is a nice round number. Maybe I should do that. And actually doing less within that long run at times is better. So if it says three hours on your plan, don't read that as three hours is good, but three and a half hours is better if you feel okay. If you feel okay, if you feel great at the end of three hours, that's the perfect time to press stop, go home, put your feet up. And I feel that there's always this decoding between a coach writing their training plan and their session and the athlete kind of reading what they want to see, reading between the lines. So if they see three hours, three hours, 15, and pushing that last 15 minutes to kind of tempo pace or M pace is going to be better. And the coach is going to be really happy. We're not, we really want to see three hours and give it five minutes either way. And ideally under the three hours is always going to be better. So if you can be really disciplined in that, it's, um, it's an art, it's an art to kind of let go of what you think is right on that day and actually just stick to what the coach suggests. Yeah. I, I got given a great piece of advice by an old coach, which is here's the training plan. Only read the black bits. And it made me laugh my little socks off because it's like, yeah, okay, don't don't try and read between the lines. <laughs> exactly, exactly what it says is exactly what I want. If it says five minute Ks, four minute thirties are not better. Five minute thirties not better. Give me what I ask for. And it was a real, a real good learning. Yeah plan for me that if, yes i thought that i could speed up for the last <laughs> oh, that's one that really gets me and uh i won't name i know i was looking over some of your athletes the other day and it was just that the last yeah. the last part of the interval was like power shot through the roof right yeah and if um <laughs> if those athletes are listening to this now please just for our own sake in that last 10 minutes 15 minutes don't look at that as an opportunity to show what you can do just show do it you know use that as a as sticking to the targets as best as possible, yeah. lowering your heart rate as low as possible, feeling it's discipline good. again, isn't it? Yeah. It's being disciplined enough to stick to a plan, even when things are not going to plan because you feel better than usual. That, yeah, that one's really bugging me at the moment. Seeing athletes <laughs> uh, take it into their own hands and do massive power spikes or pace. Yeah, but you know, it's a good point. We, if you think about Dave Clements going to do his his multi day. Um, ultra marathon across the Namibian desert and carrying his own water and having a, a double marathon on day four of that. All of his training at ePace 9-1, none of it for more than two and a half hours in training, but the durability built up through doing the bike and running back to back allowed him to go out and deliver on race day. Despite on like on paper, the training plan looks like it isn't designed to allow a human body to do that but it's about doing as much as you can and recover from it rather than doing more than you can recover from it's exactly the same when um this would be before your time chris but i had a friend called tom crossland who ran all the way around the outside of the uk and in training he never ran more than three hours for the preparation for running for he was ending up being on his feet for between seven and ten hours every day during the actual events but he never got more tired than he could recover from in training. There were plenty of two-a-day runs in his training, but he never did any really, 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 really long stuff. Yeah, I'm a huge advocate of that. And, you know, I think we've got plenty of athletes within our team that have kind of shown the benefit of this. And Emma Yates being one last Mm, year, who managed to do three full distances, including two world championships. 
And, you know, she has been plagued with niggles in the past and she religiously stuck to the 9-1. And I think, yeah. you know, being able to get through those three major events, niggle-free, is a real testament. And Ian Smith, another one of our athletes who was on the high-performance um, program, he did uh, Western Sydney and he was running in the last few K. And, you know, that's pretty rare. Was it, was it Ian that was on for the just yeah. breaking five hours if he that's could right. yeah that's yeah right. so it go it goes a long way but you have to commit to the process long term you can't just do the odd run here and there that's nine one you've actually got to integrate it as part of your philosophy as a ironman athlete or a long distance athlete and week on week you've got to be doing it and day by day not just chucking it in here and mm. there so really commit to that process as well if you're gonna if you're gonna yeah. explore that I'll tell you another quick anecdote here. And another old coach of mine said to me, the best training partner you can have is someone who is more motivated than you or as motivated as you, but slower Mm -hmm. for running specifically. And it's so, so true. If you've, if you've got a partner who's slower than you, who wants to do a half marathon or marathon, it's an absolute godsend because rather than sitting there stewing that you're being held back to a slower pace, Actually, what might be happening here is you're getting the exact stimulus you need to learn to run at nine minute miles to deliver that four hour marathon. Come Ironman race day. So, yeah. yeah. Um, This is a question that links quite nicely from Linda Brockhorst, which says, how can I progress fast in distance without injuring myself? (laughs) She <laughs> she also says she's starting from zero to give ourselves a bit of context. So I think this obviously links really well to the previous kind of answer and question that we've just gone through. Essentially, we're moving away from hard interval training and you're doing your intervals elsewhere. You're doing those in the pool. You're doing those on the bike. And when it comes to running, you're preserving your run as much as possible. You're looking to be efficient. You're looking at low impact. You're looking at progression week on week, block by block, but you're not doing anything crazy, which I know Ironman's a crazy sport, but sometimes it doesn't mean you do something crazy. This is the really difficult bit with the question, isn't it? I'm starting from zero and I want to increase my distance really quickly. Well, the best advice we can give here is don't try and do that. If you're Mm -hmm. starting from zero, the first thing you've got to accept is you're starting from zero and you have to progress slowly and you've got to build it up. My general rule of thumb here, Chris, is if someone's starting literally from zero to add no more than 10 minutes a week to their longest run, so they'll go 10, 20, 30, all the way to the hour. And then when they can comfortably run for an hour, they can extend the run by 15 minutes every week. So you can go 60, 75, 90. Every third week in that fourth week, step it back to half the distance of your longest run. So it might go 60, 75, 90, back to 45. And then 145, two hours. In there, you can see in a, what we got there, a six week, a seven week block. Maybe we've gone from an hour's long run to a two hour's long run, but we've done it safely. But people have got to be willing to accept it's going to take six or seven weeks to go from an hour to two hours, not six or seven days to go for an hour to two hours. And it it might um, feel totally unrealistic for this person right now, if they're starting from zero, to be imagining themselves running two hours. But by the point they're there, they'll hardly notice the difference between that hour and a half and two hours or hour and an hour and a half because you've just 
just topped it up enough where you're yeah. getting physical benefit, but you're not increasing the risk to the point of, in, you know, having niggles or injuries. So it's, it's, I mean, I think we're repeating ourselves a lot, but it's a game of patience. It's a game of progression. You've got to be wise. You've got to be logical. And it's, I think actually it's easier from a coach's point of view to stick to those values. But when it's you within your own training, it's very easy to get lost and spiral and see the date of your big Ironman coming up. And you're like, actually on that third or fourth week, to be honest, I'm going to have to increase my running again because I can't physically within my calendar afford to have a down week in terms of my mileage so i'm just gonna have to ramp up again and unfortunately we see it far too often where it just spirals so always slightly undercook it and always if you're going to prioritize anything prioritize the recovery week so 100 percent, that's exactly it if you're looking at the progression of the number of weeks you've got left and you think well i'm not going to get to a three-hour run if i go it like this i'm only going to get to two hours 30 well, my advice would be then you're just going to get to two hours 30 and and you're going to get there feeling good and you're going to recover from it and then come race day. All right. You're going to be maybe a little bit undercooked, but so much better to be in the race feeling like that than to ruin yourself in training and feel awful from the start of the run. Yeah. 100%. We had lots of um, conversations at the end of the year when we were asking our athletes to review their own year and look back and try and draw on the positives and negatives, things that they can work on. And, uh, you know, a really regular theme that um, I caught on to was I absolutely loved it when an athlete came in with their first few words being along the lines of I was injury free and I loved it. Yeah. Or I managed to keep my social life, my family life happy, and I was injury free. And actually, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, we had a lot of athletes, which is totally normal in endurance sport, but they were saying things along the lines of, I had a really good year, but then I got injured and it all unraveled. And we've got to look back, why did you get injured? And a lot of the times we could draw on, well, that recovery week was a recovery week. And look what you did. You went to do. 100 mile sportif and then you back that up and you ran two hours with your brother out of nowhere when in the planet said half an hour and we understand that it's really tempting especially when you've got the fitness you feel invincible and you can go and do anything and everything that people offer but at times especially in that kind of crucial build the eight to 12 weeks out from your main event you have to be really rigid with saying no to the majority of exciting opportunities that you might have within the sporting world so again, it comes back down to being disciplined and actually trying to turn up to that start line, fresh, happy, hungry for the event and not thinking, oh God, I was so fit and now I've got an ankle injury because I pushed it at a park run that no one suggested I was going to do, but it felt exciting because I want to see, can I get under 20 minutes for a park run? And to be honest, if you can get under 20 minutes for a park run, that's fine. But as coaches, we're not going to ask you to go and do that. We don't want that metric because you're going to be running a marathon. You're not just going to be running a marathon. You're going to be running a marathon off the bike after a swim. So suddenly that's kind of a metric that's irrelevant. And so just, you know, <laughs> take your time. And we, we see it too often, don't we, where athletes suddenly get this, they come out of their winter block and they've got this fitness and they just want to use it for everything. and it it becomes quite frustrating you can you can kind of see it happening through the training I think plan this is something that initially a lot of our athletes struggled with when we brought the race ready system in 
And there were a lot of questions along the lines of, um, let's let's take a park run for as an example. I want to go and do a park run this weekend, but my race ready score is going to be penalized because I've got a 75 minute long run that day, but I'm going to do my park run instead. So is that okay? Can you say that'll be okay for me? And it took a while to get the message through, didn't it? That, well, look, if we wanted you running a hard 5k that day, that was is what the plan would be. So no, that one thing you want to do doesn't translate to the other thing that is nothing like. It's really important to to stick to doing the sessions that are really going to bring you the long-term benefit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a frustrating one. I, I understand it from the athlete's point of view, but you know, if you're committing to a process, and it all comes down to goals, if you just want to get round your Ironman and you've got a bit of experience and you know that you can get round and you're happy with that, then that's absolutely fine. Fill your boots with these extra events. But if you're committing to a process where you actually want to explore your full potential, get as close to your full potential, then the plan has to reflect that. And suddenly deviating from it here and there doesn't, it's not working. It's its not within the values of the process that you're going through. So yeah, at times you just have to be rigid in, mm. yeah, that, that's the only thing that's going to bring success, unfortunately. <laughs> I think we've got time for just one more question from the from the Iron Man Europe Instagram feed. Should we do the one about front foot landings? Mm. So this is from someone called Margot Lovnium. Sorry how I pr- pronounce that, but how do I land on the front of my foot? Is it supposed to be faster? That's a great question. And it's something we hear a lot, isn't it, Chris? The the front foot running is the best way to run. And so everybody should learn to run on the front foot and, and, and let's, let's kind of like debunk the myth from the start. So firstly, however you run, don't try and land on any part of your foot. That's the first thing to say. We're not trying to land on any part of your foot. For most people, as long as you're landing somewhere on the middle of your foot, you're doing okay. We want to be avoiding if we can really violently heel striking but for most people, what we don't want to see is a forced front foot landing that ends up with people kind of running as if they're doing an impression of a pony in a pony show, kind of trotting along and bouncing on the front foot. It's one of those form follows function things. I think if you watch the faster runners in a running race, they're moving so quickly. The forward lean of their body is generating so much of their speed and momentum that they naturally fall onto the forefoot of their body. But if that's not you, if you're trying to do a five or six hour Ironman marathon, there's no way you should be landing on the front of your foot because it's just not biomechanically correct. So think about improving your run form before you concentrate on what part of your body you're actually landing on. And that means running tall, really simply running tall, having your chest extended and pointing out just a little bit further forward than your hips and a little bit of forward lean into your body position is going to carry you forward with some momentum. If that's all people think about, that's going to give most people a much better running form than no run coaching whatsoever. But please, please, please don't fall into the habit of having read in an article or a magazine or a book that you should land on the front of your foot and try and land on the front of your foot because that way it's just going to lead to injury. Yeah, brilliant, Rob. And I think there was a big push, wasn't there, in the last 10 years um, within within the sporting, within the running world of four foot runners are the best runners. And 
statistically maybe they are towards the front of marathons but you know we're, we're not looking to copy Elliot Kipchoge or Ali Brownlee it's a different sport um, it's just your body moves differently if you're moving yeah. at a different speed if I made any runner from a standard running club run a three minute 20 kilometer or three minute kilometer or even these days a two minute 45 kilometer which is what they run a marathon at guess what their body's going to land on their forefoot as well because they're almost sprinting. It's yeah. just that Elliot Kipchoge can almost sprint for 26 miles. Well, can, it's, yeah. not, it's just not relevant for, and certainly not for an Ironman marathon crowd, mm. for sure. So yeah, stay away from YouTube links. If you're, if you're trying to replicate a run, replicate it to someone with brilliant technique that runs at an equivalent pace. 100%, Otherwise, it's a different sport, yeah. isn't it? 100%. Now, I know there were a couple of questions that came up off the back of our last podcast that you wanted to cover off as well, Chris, didn't you? The first one was to do with the nutritional element of mm. long rides. So and this was, sorry, Rob, this was a question from one of our athletes, and I found it really interesting because it seemed as if there was a lot of um, healthy discussion within the group. Um, and so in the last podcast, I think we mentioned on our long rides um, at the weekends usually, um, we were talking about keeping the intensity nice and low and it should be conversational pace zone two. Um, and then we also touched on the fact that um, during this kind of intensity, we're forcing the body to adapt its system to essentially burning fat as fuel. Yeah. And the question arose of, well, if I'm fueling properly in inverted commas during the ride, does that close the door on my body being able to access the fats and becoming fat efficient during these aerobic rides? Yeah. What's your it, take on that? It, it's a really common question. And almost all of the almost all of the research these days is debunking this idea of going out and doing fasted training. It's it's really you know, it's a, a debunked myth, if you like. So to be really clear for our athletes, the thing that is going to be 99% determining how much your body learns to burn fat or not is simply the intensity that you're riding at. It's not whether you've eaten before you ride. It's not whether you're eating during your ride. It is the intensity that you're riding at. And specifically, if you go too hard too many times or <clears throat> or for too long on a long ride, what's going to happen is your body will gradually shut off the fat burning and shift to a carbohydrate metabolism. It's almost all to do with having the discipline to ride at the correct pace and not go just a bit too hard all the time. But I don't want anybody worrying that if they are fueling and feeding themselves as they're doing a long ride, it's going to switch off their fat metabolism because it absolutely isn't. It's two completely separate things. So ride along in your zone two, 65% of FTP. That's going to make sure that you're around that area where we're at the top of fat oxidation. And you can also top up there with all the carbohydrates that you need along the way as well. Because guess what? You're going to need to learn to process those for, for Ironman race day. Mm. I think another... Um good little piece of advice would be to i mean the first thing is you obviously want to avoid um what's known as as bonking within a long ride which is essentially when you haven't taken on enough calories for the duration intensity that you're doing and therefore it becomes body shutdown it's a terrible yeah. feeling and you should avoid that it's not something to be proud of if you're bonking regularly <laughs> no pun intended yeah. 
But And let's talk into that a little bit more. Let's go into the details of that, Chris, because what happens when somebody bonks is essentially they've run out of carbohydrate and because they've been trying to ride too hard, the body can't access the fat stores anymore. And that classic feeling of going lightheaded and wobbly and I can't really do anything anymore is basically because A, there's no carbs left in the tank and B, the body switched off the fat stores because you've been going too hard. So there's nothing left to go. So you're much better being at a slightly lower intensity. The body keeps ticking along at that, keeping the fat burning at maximum and you can top it up with the carbs as well yeah totally it's well, a horrible think, feeling isn't it can yeah. you, i can i can sense it in the back of my neck and the hot sweat that comes over awful. you and <laughs> it's, it's honestly awful especially when you know you've got a long way home and yeah yeah so catch it early so prevent it so make sure that yeah, you're staying yeah. away from that um and, and so, it's a really practical way to, to stop that happening is to eat every 20 minutes to mm. be taking in somewhere in the region of 100 calories from carbohydrates there or thereabouts every 20 minutes when you're out on a ride or a run. And then that way, that'll just keep that topped up nicely as you go along and it trains mm. you for race day. Yeah. In winter, so personally, I struggle to eat a lot when I'm riding at so such a low intensity. I just mm. don't have any hunger at all. Um, so I just make sure that my bottles are topped up pretty high calories. So it doesn't even feel as if I'm, you know, taking calories on board, although I am. And, you know, if I do that, week on week then i know i'm not going to bonk and i've got sufficient calories and so yeah the the kind of red flag moment i had off the back of that conversation was thinking that we might have some athletes listening to this and thinking actually it's winter i should maybe reduce my calories start losing weight now to make sure i'm weight ready for race day but that's really not what we're saying at all we're saying yeah. kind of the opposite keep your calories and get as many calories as you can without going over the top and a good kind of sign of that is when you finish your three-hour ride and you come in through the front door of your house you're not diving for the fridge because you've managed to have enough calories throughout the ride that actually within the first 10 minutes it's hardly crossed your mind to scoff your face full of whatever it might be yeah. so yeah good. really good i hope i hope people have heard the heard the necessity of that there it's if, if you're trying to lose weight, make an entirely different thing. Don't try and go out and not eat no. anything. You'll doubly punish yourself. Yeah. No. I've got one quick question if you've got the time, Rob. Mm, yeah. So this is kind of a recurring theme um, from our athletes at TOA. And I think it's recurring because a lot of our athletes are at the same phase within their training. And what I mean by that is a lot of the athletes are going through an FTP build so a lot of the sessions so two of their sessions are working at really hard intensity and it's a hard session a lot of them are doing it indoors because it's so hard and we're you know we're getting to week 10 11 12 13 depending on where they are but they've they've done a lot of weeks back to back on this and it's going to have a physical impact on how fresh their legs are and a recurring theme has been that at times the athlete finds it really hard to hit their power target within watts, let's say. Mm. Um, and therefore, they're not sure what to do. Do they lower their watts to make sure that they can actually hit the target? Or do they keep striving for the target that's prescribed and just get as close to it as possible? And are there any indicators from any other metric that they could use as a hmm okay what's going on here 
Mm. From the conversations yeah. I've had, and I could, you know, I'm not going to name them, but there are about six or seven athletes who have been through this process. And these aren't anomalies that happen, you know, three, four, five weeks in a row where they're struggling to hit their targets. And I believe that a lot of these athletes are coming off the back of something. So some illness, some stress at work, some poor sleep, poor nutrition choices. And so it could be linked to that. But I really wanted to hear your opinion and maybe give a few tips to the athletes that have these prescribed targets, but are struggling to hit them week on week. Yeah, the the advent of the affordable power meter has been <laughs> both a massive bonus and in sometimes in some instances, a massive drawback as well. And I think this is one of those times, Chris, I think there's a couple of instances here where Firstly, you're right. If athletes are really struggling week after week after week to hit the numbers in the FTP sessions, the flag's there that something's not right. And we need we need to chat to the coaches. We need a little bit of intervention. So firstly, the, the first thing I would say with this is, and I'll reiterate my message to our athletes as a coach and to also anyone else who's listening. If you have a power target in a session, think of it as a 10% band under the target. So let's say for the sake of argument, my my FTP is 250 watts. I will be happy with an athlete anywhere between 225 and 250, so 10% under their target. I'm really happy to see an athlete, and I genuinely mean this, it is not a binary pass or fail, good or bad, 250 good, 249 bad. I understand some people's brains work like this, but we're going to try as compassionately as we can to help people overcome the sort of limited thinking here. Anywhere in that 10% band is perfect. And so really we could talk about it as aiming for 90%. And if you get to 100, then fantastic, right? I would actually write the sessions as a band of 10%. The only problem is when it's when the session is pulled through into various different devices, it doesn't show us that. So it was pointless trying to do that. But for all of our athletes listening, if you do all the session at 90%, it's 100% done. That's that's the, the very most important thing to understand. And there'll be some days when you do the session and yes, you can reach 100% of FTP and you 30 minutes worth of intervals, you'll get them all done and you'll just get to the very end and it's going to be awful, but you'll get it finished. Fantastic. Some days it's going to feel like that trying to reach to 90% of FTP. So you mentioned what are some of the things we can use as, as extra information here. Wear your heart rate monitor. Get a good idea for where your heart rate should be when you're working at 100% of FTP. If your heart rate is going 5, 10 beats above where it should be, that's and you're really, really struggling and it feels like your breathing is much harder and all of those perceived effort feelings are there that this is too hard. It is totally okay to back the session down. If you need to go to 90%, absolutely fine. And that'll bring the perceived exertion in line, the heart rate in line. It means either A, your body's struggling for that particular day for whatever reason to process oxygen, and that's okay. But you said this earlier on, human bodies are not the same every single day, day to day. Some days they're better and some days they're worse at, at processing the oxygen. And in some ways, I think if if an athlete does an FTP test on the day they are feeling super fantastic, it can set an almost artificially high number for them, especially if, God forbid, they hit a round number like 200 watts or 300 watts. Then they never want to see the corresponding lower numbers underneath that again, do they? It's so, so difficult. But we have to be reasonable and realistic and think 
our bodies are not machines and robots. They're not going to deliver exactly the same thing every day. Give yourself that permission. And a, and a big part of it as well is if you've been sick, ill or injured and have had some time off, don't be afraid to adjust your FTP downwards by 10% for those first few sessions or weeks back. That's not being soft. That's being smart. It's responding and reflecting to the fact your body won't be as fit because of the illness right now. And if you feel better a couple of weeks on, by all means, we can adjust it upwards. But I'd much rather an FTP test becomes a validation of the numbers we know we have rather than a kind of people getting anxious for a week in advance of, oh, my God, what are my numbers going to tell me? We kind of we already know what your numbers are based on the last four weeks of what your training has been. It's a really tricky one. I think I think you've answered it perfectly there. And if I was listening as an athlete, um, I think I'd go away from this conversation realizing that very similar to everything we were talking about in the run, that actually don't look at a session isolated on its own. Do, you know, work hard in these sessions, but do whatever you have to do to work hard and preserve tomorrow and the next yeah. day and the next month. And yeah. There's no real benefit of your heart rate going to its absolute max in an FTP session and then waking up the next morning thinking there's absolutely no way I can get to the pool. So you you do have to be wise. And unfortunately, the coach can't tell you that every day. You have to self-manage this a little bit and you have to be wise yourself and be accountable to your own decisions. So if you know that being at that 100% FTP at the moment is slightly above how FTP should feel, which is actually, FTP is hard, but it's not that hard. We're not talking about your absolute maximum here. We're we're mm. below that. So it should feel sustainable to a certain degree. And if it doesn't feel like that, you should put your own hand up and reach for the toggle and, and bring your watts down. And don't see that as a yeah. negative. See that as a, okay, great. I'm still staying within my output of FTP in terms of my aerobic system. And I'm going to be able to do Thursday session. So yeah. there's a process there that you have to walk away from the numbers at times, knowing that you're still getting the benefit. Yeah. I think, I think a real good finger in the air for this. Remember if we define FTP, it's, you can ride at this intensity for an hour in a highly motivated race. And in training, it means you can probably ride at this intensity for 30 minutes on your own. Now, back in the day, the 30 minutes on your own thing was probably a guy or a girl in a garage on their own, probably with no music on, <laughs> just riding for 30 minutes. Zwift and Ruby and Full Gas and Trainer Road have changed all of that because all of a sudden, the 20-minute test that you do and take 95% of is a highly motivated, charged, other people around, maybe you've got teammates online egging you on. It skews those numbers upwards all the time, and I'm not sure that does anybody any good. So a good rule of thumb to come back to is, could I ride at this intensity on my own for 30 minutes? On my own, not in a race, not in a swift race with other people. Around. Could I do it on my own? And if the honest answer is no, don't be afraid to dial the numbers down just a little bit because you know what? This isn't the army. We're not asking you to run over the top and run into machine gun fire here. Train a little bit more compassionately to yourself. And rather than turning yourself inside out twice a week, it can be hard, but not quite comfortably hard. I think that's the, the ultimate mm. takeaway message, isn't it? And another way of doing that is build into it. So you can do, let's say there are four major intervals within this 
specific session that we're talking about, do your first three at 90%. And then you can evaluate how you're feeling in the fourth or fifth rep. Yeah. But build build slowly as opposed to shooting for 100%. And then after the second one, you're seeing stars, your heart rate's higher than you've ever seen it. And you're thinking, I'm the unfittest person ever. And it soon spirals out of control. So build into it. Build into yeah. it. And have that discipline to just let the power drift away a little bit over the end of the rep. There's nothing worse than seeing in that fifth or sixth rep, the power go and then it drop and there's a minute recovery and back up again and then drops again. Just let it tail away by 5%, 10%. If that's what you've got to give that day, be kind to yourself, close your eyes, keep on, keep on going, but don't have that kind of stop start kind of effort going. I think that's, that's the ultimate. Yeah right well listen that's brought us to the end of our little section i think hasn't it chris that's covered everything for today yeah lovely great to chat to you rob hope yes, that's helpful you too. To the listeners. i hope the guys who are listening at home that's that's brought some clarity around run training for ironman and then a couple of questions there around bike training as well to help really clarify some stuff for our athletes but uh we'll be back next week with with more questions with more coaches answers and uh, yeah thanks very much for joining me chris yeah, very enjoyable see you next week Okay, so tons of advice there and tons of examples of people who followed the advice and, and had successful results as well. I hope that that has helped you out if you're a self-coached, self-trained athlete, and I hope it's given you a, a bigger background and understanding if you are one of our coached athletes. And on that, if you are looking for help, advice, guidance, and coaching on the way to your Ironman 70.3 or any endurance event this year, We'd love for you to get in touch with us. There's a link in the show notes where you can click through and book a call to one of our calendars and have a chat with the coaching team and see how we could best help you out going forward into the 2023 race season. There's tons of information on our website, teamoxygenatic.com. We've got comprehensive endurance sports coaching for basically every event out there. So not just for Ironman and 70.3, but also ultra running, duathlon, aqua bike, marathon running, sportives, gravel, ultra swims, you name it. You can book a call with the team, see if you'd be a good fit for joining us. You can just find that link in the show notes and we'd be happy to have a chat and find out how we could potentially best help you out going forward into 2023. Um, And also just a shout out to our sponsors, precisionfuelandhydration.com. Remember the code OA23 for 15% off your first electrolyte order. Okay, so remember there's links in the show notes so you don't have to remember them. Remember, you can go over onto YouTube. You can like and subscribe over on YouTube. That would really help out the growth of the channel and help us reach more people. And also, I recognize that people like to sit and watch videos as well as listening to podcasts when they're in the car. So if that's you, get over and check out the video version of this episode is available over there. So until next week, have a great, safe training and racing week. I'm Coach Rob Wilby, and you've been listening to the Oxygen Addict podcast. See ya.